All right, welcome on to Eastern Conference 15 and 60. We have much to discuss here. Much research has been done. Today, maybe we'll actually make it through all 15 teams today because we do have a, a short week. So maybe it's uh, maybe we can do that today. But uh, as always, we have so much information. Maybe we'll just run out of time. And because recording for two and a half straight hours can be a little much to actually maintain the quality through that uh, amount of period. But speaking of maintaining quality, the Washington Wizards on a yeah. run, five and one on a recent six game homestand. Where are they overall now? Ten and seven, six and one since the last 15 and 60. Still negative net rating, negative 0.9 is 20th in the league, 24th in offense, but a robust sixth in defense, which is fantastic for them. Raptor is still skeptical, projects that the Wizards will win 36 games and finish 12th in the East. ELO, 39 wins and 10th in the East. And you see a corresponding shift in their Raptor and ELO odds per 538. Raptor, 22% of making the eight-team Eastern Conference playoffs. And ELO, 40% chance, so almost double. Yeah, I watched our game against Charlotte. We'll fold Charlotte into this analysis as well. 106-102 in the end. Another game where the Wiz didn't exactly have a dominating performance that's part of why uh, even with the the nice record so far perhaps they are not the darling of the analytic models uh, eyes we, we talked about their game against the thunder which they lost at the close uh, on a shea gilgis alexander three then they barely beat miami over the weekend when miami had basically seven healthy players beat them by one and took care of the now four and 14 hornets by four in this one worth noting Monte Morris didn't play with a sprained ankle they also had Rihachimura out with a sprained ankle as well they did get Jordan Goodwin back fortunately that knee issue that he had in the OKC game wasn't particularly serious I thought one of the most amusing portions of this game at least at first was the mutual non-aggression pact by Steve Clifford and <laughs> was until junior to play Johnny Davis and Kai Jones at the same time in the second quarter. Yeah, and Kai Jones ended up with four points in eight minutes. Johnny Davis, zero points in five minutes. And the Hornets won that. I, I don't know if they were all together, but won that by seven. Yeah, we'll talk about Kai Jones when we shift to the Hornets here. But Johnny Davis was 0 for 1. I, I, his most notable play in that five-minute stretch in the second quarter. Again, I guess he was playing just because Monte Morris was out. Was passing up a wide open three to the point where even the Wizards announcers were like, hey, you got to shoot that one. And that, of course, was one of the questions about Davis. Is like, how is he going to play? Where is he going to fit in when he's not getting the ball? Which obviously is not going to as a bit player the way that he is. So didn't really see much uh, to distinguish him in this one. Without Morris, uh, they actually brought in Corey Kispert to the starting lineup for him instead. And Beal was kind of the nominal point guard, but they put him on Kyle Kuzma's hands a, a lot. He delivered 28 points, 10 of 18, 4 of 8 from 3. Was running a, a lot of pick and roll. They even had him handling the ball in like a Spain pick and roll situation, which was interesting. They had him, Kispert, and Avdia running Spain pick and roll together with Porzingis in one corner and Beal in the other and they actually got like a nice slip to the rim for an easy layup out of that that 
that was pretty interesting porzingis struggled uh was four of 19 but his gravity was really important i thought that the hornets did not use the right strategy on him they put their center on him plumley or richards to some degree most of the time it was plumley and so they got stuck in a number of bad situations one was having to stick closer to porzingis even though he was only two of eight from three he hit his first two and then missed his last six but that was enough to get them to kind of uh really freak out about him and so then anytime he was involved in pick and roll what they were doing was blitzing the ball handler charlotte and then bring another guy over to porzingis and porzingis is not a great passer so that actually didn't work too terribly particularly because porzingis you know just didn't have it going with the 419 yeah and and porzingis also two assists four turnovers in the game yeah so so that was a little bit of an issue he had five fouls he did have five block shots though and he was a, a monster defending the rim on the other end but i would have thought hey you've got denny avdia right there on the floor he's not a huge threat you know, this is what teams used to do a lot of times when Porzingis was in Dallas to just, hey, throw your center on Denny Avdia, like dare him to make threes. He was 0 of 3 from threes, just not comfortable shooting from there at this point in time. And then, they, you know, they have P.J. Washington, who in theory could have guarded Porzingis reasonably well instead. Unfortunately, P.J. Washington for Charlotte, uh, God, he was bad defensively in this game. But at least Porzingis wouldn't blow by him, like because P.J. trying to guard Kuzma was just, he had no hope whatsoever in this game like pj gave up more blow buys to guys that you just don't think of as blow by guys that got blown by by avdia later when they switched him off of kuzma like he had probably four or five just straight up isolation jailbreaks to the rim before the help could even get over there um so that, that was really disappointing from him um oh, oh can i say see, something yeah. quick about denny avdia so yeah i, yeah. I may end up making this a focus of a future 1560 but it, it at times it's felt like in the wizards game as i've watched that he's had a larger role within the offense but when you look at the overall stats obvious played in 16 games this year his usage rate is identical down to the tenth of a percent to last year his true shooting has gone from 54 percent to 50 percent in part because denny avdia is converting 42 percent of his twos yeah that's really disappointing although he was good in this one at uh six of eight from two had four offensive rebounds uh i think he's he's an interesting player to be sure i think he maybe looked a little bit better in in this setting with them going so big uh and i think part of that is because Corey kispert gave them really just some nice offensive pace in the half court just when he gives the ball up he's always just looking for an opportunity to go do something go interact with someone set a screen slip out of it move the ball quickly if he doesn't have the shot uh he did blow one wide open fast break layup off a great pass but had another nice rugged finish going into the body of i think it was gordon hayward um so you kind of i mean again he's not going to be a star i still worry about how he's going to get enough three-point volume and he does kind of shoot that low arc laser not a lot of versatility for like a pure sniper type but he just he knows how to play basketball that's something that this wizards team can use and with the space if porzingis is going to play center and be guarded by the other team's center He's very good at just moving the ball, cutting into space. You know, that was something Avdia had some success with as well. So there, Porzingis had a poor game, but the Wiz are shooting extremely well at the rim. They're shooting over 70% at the rim as a team this season. And I think the space that Porzingis provides is a big part of it. And in this one, I thought the Hornets had some pretty poor strategy overall, but particularly for dealing with Porzingis. 
Uh, uh, are are you ready? Hornets, no. yeah, yeah, let me do their stats. So the Hornets are four and fourteen on the season, and if you want to do it just since the last fifteen and sixty, they're one and seven, but they're actually one out of their last eleven. Oof. And they started the season three and three, and then since then they're one and eleven. So I guess they're actually one out of the last twelve. Um, the Hornets are twenty seventh in net rating, negative six point two points per hundred possessions per cleaning the glass. 30th in offense, 19th in defense, and Raptor, 33 wins, which would be 13th in the East. Elo, 30 wins, which would also be 13th in the East, and they have roughly a 10% chance of making the playoffs per those models. Yeah, and that offense obviously is extremely disappointing for a team that was, I believe, 6th in offense a year ago. They can't hit a shot to save their lives. It's a different cast to some degree, but not that different. But I, I, there are a number of reasons for this, other than, of course, Lamella Ball being out. You know, their backup point guard, Dennis Smith, I thought played pretty well again in this game coming off an ankle injury, but he's not going to bomb threes. Like, that's the one part of his game that still is kind of broken. Uh, although I think the rest of his game actually looked really good. Talk more about that. But the other reason I think that they are much better defensively this year, slightly, I mean, I mean they, they look better defensively. It's not just like a total tire fire, although the numbers in defense of James Brigg are not really that much better but they don't play pj washington at center at all anymore and it's either Plumley or richards on the floor basically at all times even when they brought kai jones in for his brief cameo he played the four exclusively so uh, there's just been a, a different emphasis and they haven't had nearly the amount of floor spacing or shooting and they you know this is a game that i thought they certainly played well enough to be in but they shot eight out of 32 and the Wiz were 13 out of 34 from three and that, that was a big part of why the hornets ended up losing gordon hayward is back uh, although he had suffered another collision on that left shoulder it was interesting you could see i was kind of like hey shoulder contusion like what's going on it did look like he had just like a massive bruise on his left shoulder and then he ran into someone again he was struggling to finish but he ended up uh, playing 37 minutes uh, in this one had the three ball working early both teams were hitting a bunch of threes early and then both uh, got cold terry rozier started at the one with Lamelo out they brought dennis Smith jr off the bench and Kelly Oubre had a nice game, scored a bunch of points in the third quarter, uh, but still he's really struggled to shoot the three. He's got really high volume, but he's like way down at like the low 30s. He might even be under 30% now after this game. But Rozier, to me, really struggled to run the team, and their best moments were with Smith Jr. on the floor. They had a really nice comeback, took a pretty good lead at the end of the third with him out there, and then in crunch time, they just had no organization it was your turn my turn pj washington trying to drive on guys and missing and uh, they tried to have the uh, hayward come off a pick and roll but they really they just couldn't get any kind of ball movement it really devolved into some bad isolation stuff and so i think i probably would have just put in dennis smith jr for pj washington particularly given how bad pj washington was defensively in this game and tried to run more through him and smith has been fantastic running the pick and roll this season he's setting up nick richards left and right uh only credited with three assists but really every anytime he ran pick and roll he was getting into the lane against a conventional pick and roll defense and i'm not sure he can beat a switch because he can't shoot it all but i think you know against a team like the wizards that looked pretty good he was making the right decisions then also had two steals and two blocks he he got into it with bradley beal who actually played 41 minutes in this game interestingly enough and and beal got the better of him a couple of times but smith it all started when smith blocked him on a post up early and uh then beal got him on a back door later on clifford took out smith although he was i thought pretty good defensively other than that one error 
on the back door. But Smith, it's just good to see him. Doesn't have quite the same ridiculous explosiveness he had as a prospect. You know, the injuries have kind of sapped that a little bit. Just still not at all a three-point shooter. But his floor game and his defense is actually, like, good now. It's, it's amazing that he's playing at, like, a really high level defensively, which is just shocking for those of us who watched the early portion of, of his career. Uh, Jaden McDaniel, or sorry, Jalen McDaniels had another one out of five <laughs> from two-point range. Like, he's he'll just go on these drives to nowhere and turn it over or just throw up some crap his two-point shooting continues to be bad i guess the last thing i can talk about from this one was the kai jones minutes and they actually were plus seven when he played they brought him in because pj washington was getting cooked so badly by kuzma and like jones he's just he had a couple of nice finishes at the rim like one where he just jumped like right over the top of chris Stapp's Porzingis. like he's just catching the ball among four wizards right at the charge circle and just like jumping over everyone to finish it and then he also had a sick transition dunk he, he just has some of the weirdest movement patterns i've ever seen in an nba player because he's so athletic when he really can load up but he it's so rare that he's actually able to do that he has like he seems like he's constantly off balance his legs are all akimbo he'll just like try to even just like dribble into a dribble handoff and he traveled he's just a very very weird awkward player and you know some of his closeouts he's getting blown by you know i think if he's against like a kuzma type maybe he can hold up okay when he's not going to get just killed by quickness and you can use his length but uh then when he, he just gets bounced around a lot in the interior so i didn't see a lot from jones to where i was like okay he's, he's taking a ton of steps forward here i still think he's a center on offense they he didn't shoot any three so that's about it i guess uh, from this one on the on the well, Charlotte and, standpoint and and the other point they they did trade vernon carry to the of uh, the wizards incidentally uh, but nick richards has been better than kai jones so far this season oh so sure yeah there, there's the question of you know like okay if he play and nick richards uh, I mean, I think you give him a chance to start. We've talked about that before at some point, but I don't think he's like a star in waiting or something like that. So yeah, that is definitely, definitely kind of something I'm keeping an eye on considering not that this is fair to Kai Jones, but what the Hornets gave up to get him. Yeah. Nick Richards didn't have his best game. He, he is just relentless on the offensive glass and he basically caused Daniel Gafford to get pinned to the bench in the second half because he couldn't box him out and they went with Taj Gibson for the six center bench minutes in the second half and Gibson went right through Nick Nick Richards at one point for like a spinning hook shot post up and so I, I thought Nick would actually missed a, on a few box outs himself on the defensive end and had another couple of plays where guys kind of went through his chest a little bit like playing with more physicality on defense is, is something I think he could improve on uh, like I said I mean I'm not a big believer that I mean I think Richard should be given a shot to start sure but I, I'm not sure he's gonna be better than Plumley. he will be better than Plumley shooting a pull-up left-handed jumper I like it just Mason Plumley is low-key just like one of the most arrogant basketball players I've ever seen it you just I've never like because he can pass a little bit it's like and he theoretically plays hard he's just like given rein by the coaches to do this stuff it's like Chris Porzingis is waiting under the rim and so Plumley just decides to pull up with his lefty jumper it's like you just started shooting left-handed last year like you have to shoot free throws I get it he's actually making those free throws okay but it's like no it's not a good shot for you to take a left-handed jumper from the foul line it's just not like how why do you deserve to be able to take that shot when there are players who are like great shooters in this league who aren't taking that shot a mid-ranger from you're taking a fucking left-handed jumper unbelievable what's next sir uh do you want to go through the raptor stats yes absolutely 
nine and eight. That's a little disappointing. You know, it seemed like they are about to go on a run. I mean, the whole league is injured right now. This is, we may catch that up at some point, maybe tomorrow, just like how many teams are really whole enough that you're like excited about their games. It's really, it's hit early this year, but so nine and eight, three and four since we last checked in on them ninth in net rating plus 2.2 of course they've had pascal siakam out with this groin issue various other injuries as well fred van bleed in and out of the lineup presses a is going to miss a lot of time now with this ankle issue they are 12th on offense and 10th in defense they project per raptor for fourth in the east 48 and 34 elo they are sixth 46 and 36 there are a lot of teams clustered in that area in the east 86 percent chance of making the playoffs per raptor 77 percent per elo and it really seems day like there is a style of raptors basketball that has emerged uh, in the post kyle lowry era there definitely is and what's most striking to me about it is as you mentioned they've dealt with a lot of absences there are plenty of others you can mention including gary trent jr but the Raptors are basically in the same area of all the four factors, both on offense and defense, to last year. And when you consider that they've had a lot of different personnel between those two years, Siakam missed time both, but you know, doing that and Fred Van Leet's missed a little bit less than half the season so far. And I wanted to go through a few of the things that are are different and because I think they're notable. And so one of them is the Raptors are getting to the free throw line a lot more. And I think that Siakam was a big part of that before he got hurt. So Unfortunately, that number will take some time to rebound, but that is a real positive for the Raps. And then the other one is a downgrade, actually, defensively. We mentioned that they're 10th, but part of that is because opponents are are making, instead of about like league average effective field goal percentage last year, they have the sixth highest so far this year. And I did some digging. Mostly, I would say... Good news for the for the Raptors. Opponents are doing better for both both mid range areas, which not as little control over those as threes. But they're you know if you're in in the bottom there, then that's gonna you know that'll that'll change things. You expect that to regress to the mean. But the one that I want to keep an eye on is not a field goal percentage question, but actually an attempt frequency question. That's how often opponents are getting to the rim. So last year, that was 32% of Raptors opponent possessions. This year, that's up to 36.5. And there are a lot of explanations from small sample size and available talent and just being a little bit weaker in terms of available guys in terms of both rim protection and preventing dribble penetration. But the other reason I want to keep it on is so sometimes you see a trade-off where a team is doing something negative, like something has gone worse for them, but then there's something else positive in the same kind of genre. And that's not really the case for them in terms of giving up fouls. They're actually fouling more than they did last year. And I was like, oh, you know, they have a rookie who plays a fair amount at center, Christian Coloco, and Ken Birch hasn't played a ton, but like when he's been out there, maybe it's just those minutes where they go small. But no, not really. I mean, the, the foul rate actually improves when they're playing without Coloco or Birch. So I, I'm not near close enough yet to worry about this, but it is one of the few things that's actually different. So I wanted to track it a little bit. Yeah, again, it just uh, we talk about their style of play, and you compare them to say a team like the Celtics, where the Celtics are forcing almost no turnovers so far this year. They're doing a lot of switching, and I would say that you know, the Celtics have more veterans, which obviously matters, right? There's no Al Horford directing things on the back line here, no Marcus Ole, if you want to do a, a Raptors analogy, and they also have this strategy where they're trying to force a bunch of turnovers and that can juice their offense but they're giving up as you mentioned a fair number of shots through more this year and they had and that's because they are pressuring up and despite their talent they're getting blown by a lot and you know that can lead to turnovers just overall chaos 
but you just you always wonder what it would look like with this team if they just decided to switch more with these athletes and like play more conservatively even in individual defense try to keep guys in front of them or i mean the other thing too is hey maybe we're just they've got all this length and stuff but like maybe we're just overrating what these individual defenders are like i don't think trent is necessarily good barnes i i mean it seems like every time someone tries to drive at him they just blow right by him. That's again, maybe they're trying to get him to pressure and like that's, you know, they're okay with those drives and they'll help out of that and stuff. But, you know, maybe they're just not as good as keeping guys in front of him. It's like, it looks like when you just add up, you know, some of the wingspans, the athleticism on this team. What else did you find as you looked at the Raptors? We've talked about their defensive cup shortcomings, but we should talk about one player who is not a part of that. And that's OG Ananobi. And not that I'm saying it's gospel, but OG Ananobi is currently third in defensive EPM behind Brooke Lopez and Zubats, actually. Some of the usual suspects are pretty f- close behind, but Z- OG Ananobi is third. And in part, that's because Ananobi's leading the league in steal rate. He has been an absolute terror. 3.3% steal rate is absolutely fantastic. And just as a quick note, we focused on his offense. At some point, we'll get into this, but OG... true shooting on 22 usage. That 22 usage would be a career high if he can keep it going throughout the whole year. Yeah, he had that big 32-point game over the weekend to to get them to victory. I guess another thing that's been kind of interesting to track, this came up a lot recently last year when they were pretty good getting back on defense, but they also were hitting the offensive glass pretty well and you know keeping teams out of transition was a big part of what they're doing this year though maybe we should focus more on what they're doing just in their regular half court defense because that's been a struggle so far yeah that's right i've actually over the years obsessed quite a bit about toronto's first shot half court offensive rating and they're still struggling there as they as they have often during this iteration of the raptors but you're right they were 10th last year 93.8 points per half court opponent offensive possession that's all the way up to 97.9 that go you go from 10th in the league to 24th in the league i i think it's small sample size theater and the available talent and everything else like that but it does you know like we'll get we'll get a version of a referendum on this once we get more time here let's move on to the philadelphia 76ers they are eight and eight four and two since the last 15 and 60 their plus 1.8 net rating is good enough for 11th and that's actually fueled by their defense not their offense they are fifth in defensive rating 18th in offense though some of that of course is available talent raptor and elo both project the sixers to win 47 games and finish east sorry fifth in the east regular season and give them you know about an 80 percent chance of making the playoffs Yeah, and I watched their game against Milwaukee. We'll talk about that in a second. But Tyrese Maxey, who's in the midst of a fantastic game, he now will miss three to four weeks with a small bone fracture in his left foot. Suffered that in the Milwaukee game. But they managed to to win that one anyway. You mentioned the defense. um, They're going to get a lot better on offense. They're missing two of the three best offensive players now for some time. Harden says he's on track. You know, I think it was two weeks ago that he last played. He thinks he's on track with that foot tendon strain to return within the timeline they were talking about, which is about four weeks. So that's good news. They're going to now have to navigate a stretch with only Joel Embiid as an offensive centerpiece. And we saw that uh, against Utah and he he was able to close it out down the end against Milwaukee as well as we'll talk about. One thing though, Danny, we should probably note before we get into it is that defense is really benefiting from opponent shooting luck for sure and right now philadelphia actually has the league's lowest opponent three-point shooting percentage just 32.3 percent of their attempts and if you want to know where the 
median in the league is, it's about 36.3. So they are 4% worse on the three-pointers they give up. Opponents are shooting 4% worse on the ones that Philly gives up. And Philly's about a league average opponent three-point attempt rate. So that makes a huge difference. Let's get into this game now against Milwaukee. And yes, their defense has been better. You know, I think there was some scoffing early on because they look so bad in transition. Like they have really improved there quite a bit. That's been an emphasis. Also, not having James Harden out there probably helps your transition defense and your overall defense a little bit but I thought they played well against a Milwaukee team that did have Drew Holiday back in the lineup start with Embiid though uh he had 32 points 12 of 26 from the field didn't get to the foul line a ton six of eight his matchup against Brooke Lopez was really interesting Embiid did have eight assists but five turnovers in the third quarter Embiid really got going it was really mostly the mid-range jumper in this one what did he end up shooting from mid-range in this game because it seemed like that was he only had one bucket really attacking Brooke Lopez inside Lopez actually blocked him a couple of times in the second half but it was facing up and attacking Lopez and shooting from mid-range that seemed most successful for Embiid to the point where Milwaukee actually started doubling him on the catch in those areas. I will note, as we always do, that logging these things can be inexact, but they the scorekeeper, Embiid, seven mid-rangers, he made four of those, f- 10 floater range shots where he made five and only three shots in the restricted area, though Embiid also did get to the line for eight free throw attempts, which is respectable, of course, against a team that doesn't give up that many free throw attempts. Yeah, the other key stretch was when George Nying was out there. He ended up playing 30 minutes uh, in part due to the absence of Maxi. But I've talked a lot about the matchup advantages that I believe Philly has. And again, this is still not the Bucks team that we're going to see. They're missing really their two most versatile wing players in Chris Middleton and Pat Connaughton. Both of those guys are starting to do more at practice. Seems like Connaughton may be close coming off that calf issue, which has lingered since the start of the regular season, a little bit longer maybe than expected. And Middleton, it seems like he's kind of uh, working his way back into shape now, uh, rather than that it's just the, the wrist issue. So maybe his debut could come in the next couple of weeks uh, at this point. Uh, but Bucks are being relatively cagey about these things. But I've talked about how the Bucks really kind of have to stay big. They really only have one guy in Brooke Lopez who they trust to guard and beat. I think Lopez does a pretty decent job. Uh, he made it through 34 minutes with only two fouls in this game. So, and I, you know, Lopez is big enough to give Embiid a few problems here and there. And but you know, it still is enough of a matchup problem that they just doubled Joel Embiid 17 feet from the basket and let him distribute as much as he did with the eight assists. But then also another reason that there's a, a matchup disadvantage is you can get away with playing your George Niangs against the Bucks. They're not going to just go after George Niang in pick and roll. And Niang provides a really important element of shooting. He was four of eight from three, 17 points in 30 minutes. And they also were able to play Jake Milton, another guy who's just not a very good defensive player. Uh, and even, you know, when you get to the starters, Harden and Maxi, like that's not a, you're not going to see the Bucks doing a ton of pick and roll, like go at Tyrese Maxi setting the screen with the likes of Javon Carter or George Hill or Grayson Allen, who, who's back now from his ankle issue. Um, How did you yeah, think that Drew Holiday looked? This was his first game back. He ended up with 10 points in 23 minutes coming off the bench. Yeah, he did have five turnovers. You know, I thought he was a little bit aggressive at times. Like he got blocked by Embiid once just like trying to go into his chest. I mean, he's he'll go into anybody's 
just basically trusts his strength that much. Uh, 0-4 from three, that step back for Drew is kind of such an important shot for him as he's gotten older and he hit it last year during the regular season then you know against the Celtics obviously he was really inefficient because he's overstretched as the primary ball handler and it seemed that way again today but you know maybe when he's more back into rhythm he can have more of a, a defensive impact but yeah rough one for him with 10 points on 12 shooting possessions and five turnovers and he admit he had missed four straight a uh, couple other thoughts uh, they did start uh marjan bochamp uh, who had that really nice game against the hawks and uh, a couple other good ones he didn't have it in this one and uh only ended up playing 15 minutes i think he got the keith bogans jordan wara had a, a huge game last week hit a bunch of threes and he played 25 minutes and again didn't really get taken advantage of too much like your allens and your noras were able to play with harden and maxi not playing in this one like there's no one to attack them either philly's defense does look a lot better though with you know they started tucker house melton that's a pretty good group it really helps to control the defensive glass some as well right like we might end up in a weird circumstance during this narrow window when both maxi and harden are unavailable where it kind of looks a little bit like the russell westbrook those late russell westbrook thunder teams where you just can play a bunch of defensive players and hope that joel Embiid can leave you can lead you to reasonable offensive efficiency and like that that has more of their ball hawk players melton didn't have any steals in this one but he of course can do that overall yeah, and I think my strategy as the Bucks, rather than double from the perimeter, would have been say, to say, Brook Lopez, hey, your job is to make Joel put the ball on the floor, and we're gonna we'll load to him more at the rim, and then try to make him play in a crowd and make decisions on the move. Maybe there's a feeling that hey, he's gonna put us in foul trouble because he just knows all the tricks getting to the basket. We can turn now to the Bucks. Uh, what are their fundamentals? Milwaukee is. 11 and 4, though unfortunately, because they had an undefeated record before, they're 2 and 4 since last 1560. Still a strong fourth in net rating, plus 5.1 per 100 possessions, and that is fueled by their defense. Number one in defense, number 22 in offense. We talked a lot about that during the NBA strategy stream. It was our strategy to watch, it was something that we keyed on. And both Raptor and Elo project the Bucks to finish with the second best regular season record in the East and gives them a high percentage chance of making the playoffs. And do you want to talk about it, the interestingly though, not like 99%. Yeah, the only been, team in the whole league that's at that like crazy high 99% chance of making the playoffs right now is the Celtics, which I think is, is pretty fascinating that there's just statistically, there's just no one that the, the system believes in that much, except the Celtics who famously, you know, were like massive favorites by five thirty eight even over the Warriors in last year's finals. Right. Um, and what one way to yeah. quantify that is that um, Raptor gives a full strength rating for each team. Yeah. The Celtics are at 1,710. There are only two other squads within... 50 of them the bucks and the grizzlies so like that's a pretty big margin and then it you know it stems off from there so like basically the the models think of the celtics as significantly better than everyone else i'm not as rosy there though i do think the celtics are damn good we'll talk about them in i don't know three hours yeah (laughs) (laughs) i want to talk about Giannis here you know i hit on some bucks uh, things already after this game Giannis was 415 from the foul line there was the drama 
afterwards where he wanted to practice some free throws mantras harrell like grabbed his ball from him and said basically it's like told him not to shoot there which was you know whatever just being annoyingly antagonistic and then Giannis had to go to the back get some other balls to practice his free throws more and by the time he was back there was a ladder there with the arena worker and Giannis tried to move it out of the way and knocked it over and you know a lot of people saw just the video of that I, I don't really need to get into like whether Giannis Antetokounmpo is the greatest asshole to ever exist because of this interaction with the arena workers but generally your the culture is that you acquiesce when the player wants to shoot at a basket they're like taking down some camera from the top of the backboard a- absolutely i will note as we're working through this antetokounmpo has the highest free throw attempt rate per 36 minutes of his career career high was previously 12.5 he's up to 14.3 so far again when a player has a career high through 12 games you expect it to regress the mean but also a career low in free throw make percentage last year 72 percent we were optimistic after the 21 finals that those struggles were behind him and i don't think he's going to stay at 59 percent forever but we have seen I would say we've seen signs both with the eye test and with the stats that Giannis isn't as confident at the free throw line as he was last year. Yeah, I, you know, he certainly, he'll never stop driving at least, at least if there's any indication before, but he's had some three real bad games in the last week or so. And even those ones that he was practicing, he airballed one of his practice free throws after the game on that video. And because of those struggles and also his struggles from the field as well, he had another six out of 18 games game against Cleveland last week this one he was 10 to 22 but at the 415 line Giannis Cupo, he's 39 usage he's had to keep this team afloat we talked about that in the Hawks game they just had nobody else even with Drew they don't have anybody else but and, and without him these last four games have been tough he also is coming back from his own knee issues and I think they he probably came back maybe earlier than they would have liked it if they had been at full strength and actually winning games but yeah 55.5 percent true shooting is almost two points below the league average for Giannis Antetokounmpo and I, I thought his shot selection in this game was not great either that he was getting criticized on the ESPN broadcast but I thought rightfully so when you're bricking every free throw like moving it out to the three-point line doesn't really seem to make a lot of sense so he hasn't been effective there but it's also it's just tough for him to just be slamming into a brick wall every single time they got him beat there they have pj tucker to guard him i thought paul reed did an okay job as well so they're Giannis just as he was the early leader for mvp i don't think given the offensive inefficiency i know he's had a huge load to carry yeah that on that he's on that be front up there for me yeah 38.8 usage per right, best right. basketball references version stat not only does that lead the league it's higher than he had in 1920 when he also led the league right so that's actually higher than luca now huh yes it is yeah also worth noting when we talk about true shooting the league average as of right now is 57.2 percent which is definitely the highest i ever recall seeing it so that's it on the bucks let's move now to go a little bit out of order just to get to another danny team here with the eight and nine new york knicks it's been quite the roller coaster for them giving up a buck 45 to okc then they come back they beat utah and denver on back-to-back nights in relatively close games and they lose two in a row got mostly blown out by the warriors they got back into against the warriors bench so but they were down 20 in the first half and you know it wasn't a game where you felt like they were competitive throughout most of it that was on friday and then another struggle against the suns today only 95 points against phoenix this is still a suns team without chris paul 
And without Cameron Johnson, Suns continue to roll along, by the way. And just really were not competitive in this one either. 7 of 25 from three, low number of attempts. So they are 25th now in net rating, negative 3.4, 19th on offense, a miserable 25th on defense. That's where you thought if they really were going to exceed expectations this year, it would come on the defensive end. That hasn't been the case so far. They still project for the nine seed per Raptor, 39 wins. Elo actually projects them for the nine seed as well with 40 wins and reasonable chance at the playoffs, 35% Raptor, 51% Elo. But with some of the center injuries, Mitchell Robinson did return today, came off the bench, Hartenstein started. They have actually gone to the Knicks blogosphere, Twitter sphere, fantasy of Randall and Toppin together. What have been the results on that so far? Not fantastic. Though it's only 111 possessions before today's game, but negative 5.4 net rating and that negative 5.4 net rating, they've been above average on offense. It's just that they've been horrendous on defense, about a 120 defensive rating when they've been lucky on opponent shots and like opponents are making lower percentage of threes than you expect and you brought up that with the Knicks they are a little unlucky relative to average on threes but in those minutes they've been very lucky and Fred Katz has talked about this well before including I remember I watched the game against the Sixers where it worked reasonably well but that was an extremely short-handed squad and I think one of the challenges for Thibodeau is that he has to pick your spots because that is an extremely limited defensive group you don't have any real rim protection you they don't really have a ton of supplemental from the three you get you know you can get some stuff from a few guys but that means if the initial action is successful the other team is going to be cooking with gas and there were times that maxi did well and times that maxi was exhausted but that means it's more of a change of pace it's when the other team doesn't have a great pick and roll ball handler or something like that rather than a standard feature unless you just are facing a bunch of teams that don't have those sorts of of creators. The other thing I wanted to talk about, and again, you know, we're 16 games into the season, is RJ Barrett. And I'm Seems not like he starts so slowly every year. It does. And remember going back to 2020/slash 21, he had a slow start, pretty awful start, and then was strong towards the second half of that year. So it was the idea, you know, I at some for some players this has worked, but the idea of like the whole thing counts. And so Barrett follows up that 2020 slash 21 strong second half with 51% true shooting on 28 usage. And we all know that there were some unfavorable elements for the Knicks last year. And putting all of that at the feet of RJ Barrett is not fair, though he did convert 44% of his twos. And that is distinctly not great so far this year. And that basketball reference hasn't counted today's game yet. 49% true shooting on 25 usage. And a part of why that's concerning is because Barrett does have a more favorable favorable ecosystem this time not a perfect one but they have Jalen Brunson who could take some of the playmaking burden his usage rate is down and so for an imperfect but still more favorable ecosystem to not produce even like close to league average efficiency albeit small sample size I'm I'm not thrilled yeah the shooting has been a major problem again and He's really going through it in these last five games now. His best field goal percentage in his last five games is 32%. He's two of 25 from three in that period. And these are not games where he's like not shooting either. I mean, he's been in double digit field goal attempts in each of these games. You know, he's at that 25 usage is still a pretty high number. And, you know, again, you just kind of wonder 
Is it him? Is it the system? He, he hasn't really been taking as many mid-rangers. That's actually one that nice thing about the Knicks as a team is they're actually one of the lowest percentage of shots from long mid-range in the league. They take a shit ton of floaters in the lane, but those are definitely better shots to be taking than just like straight pull-up mid-rangers. So I don't know. I, I It's... Uh, are there any like signs of life uh, that that we can be happy about? Yeah, there there are a couple. So Barrett, so far through those sixteen contests, is finishing sixty seven percent of his shots in the restricted area. That is well over. Like that's a, a an intense career high. Is at sixty percent career? So sixty seven percent is a huge improvement there. And part of the reason why Barrett has been so bizarrely inefficient is that for whatever reason, and at some point I may watch film of this if it persists, Barrett is scoring less than 0.9 points per possession in transition. Usually in transition, guys are incredibly efficient. Either they're taking the shot if it's open or they're passing off of it. And Barrett was league average last year. So if he improves that, if the some of the two-point elements kind of stay home with where they are now, you expect the three-point shooting to regress to the mean. He's a career 35% three-point shooter on relatively the same volume as he's taking right now. So I do not expect it to be this bad moving forward. Yeah, I just – the one thing that I thought would be great for this Knicks team was their bench – and Derek Rose has not really been the same level of player that he was before the ankle surgery. A year ago, there's talk that he could potentially be traded. And Emmanuel quickly has had a rough offensive start to the season that Rose quickly backcourt used to work together pretty well. So they haven't been dominating on the second unit the way they have in years past. And a lot of the pieces have changed, but the starters haven't been great either. But again, I've said this before, but the common denominator in that starting lineup essentially has been Julius randall and it's just so difficult unless he's going crazy like he did with 34 points in i think it was the utah game to build the team around him he's not shooting well from three he doesn't stand at the three-point line that much and obi toppin has actually been shooting the three ball much better like that's one thing that is making me more excited about him on the offensive end is that maybe now he is finally coming into his own to where he can play off the ball some as well he doesn't solve their defensive problems but it's just what and then with randall we talked about it when we did that Cavs game of how they're just they have to play a conventional pick and roll defense a lot with the four instead of being able to switch top and wouldn't solve that of course you know maybe cam reddish starting wood he's been out they started quentin grimes in this game against phoenix finally uh i didn't see how he played necessarily but so it just like bringing randall off the bench he's their highest paid player i think he's close to it with brunson i'm not sure who exactly is it is but that to me would make everything just fit so much better for this team like i think they have decent talent or, or maybe they don't we'll see but it's just so hard to find out particularly with the likes of barrett who wants to get to the room you mentioned how his finishing is so much better this year like that's that's actually the one thing that's really encouraging so just giving him a little bit of space to work there's always going to be a room protecting center on the floor you just it's hard to make a team that fits and the report from ian begley that tom thibodeau's seat is starting to get a little bit hot and They've, they've had a weird week, very up and down, so I'm not sure how this would affect that, but 8-9, and that's, that's about where we expected them to be in the end. They've just had some kind of, when they lose, they lose ugly, it seems like. Right, and that's a part of why the Knicks are 25th in net rating instead of better, because they've had some of those ugly losses. The Orlando Magic are 5-12 and 12 on the season, but a, an extremely respectable 3-4 and four since the last 15-60, including 
playing without Paolo Bancaro for a lot of that time. And their last four wins, just because I think this is striking, that game against the Warriors we did for the NBA strategy stream, home against Dallas, home against Phoenix, and at Chicago. Those are their wins, and they've, of course, lost to some some below-average teams as well. But keep going with the fundamentals, the magic. Negative 2.4 net rating is 24th in the NBA, about even on offense and defense, 21 on offense, 23 on defense, and both 538 models project them to finish 14th in the East with 26 wins and give them, you know, like a one in a 3% chance of making the playoffs. And because I think this matters for teams towards the bottom of the league, let's just use Raptor. They currently project the Magic to finish with 26 wins, which is pretty actually clear of both the bottom and above them because the Rockets projected for 18 wins, the Pistons, we'll talk about later, for 20, then the Magic at 26, and the Spurs, who got crushed on Sunday night by the Lakers oh my God, at 29. They are, they are getting just destroyed lately um yeah so i I mean 21st in offense for this group given who's been available all season is kind of a miracle (laughs) uh paul bancaro is out he's unlikely to play for a few more games he talked to kobe price it sounded like he wasn't close he seems like maybe more in the week to week than day to day standpoint gary harris did come back from the meniscus surgery played in their miracle victory well not that much of a miracle at least given the overall flow of the game but it was a miracle at the end against chicago didn't play uh, on the back-to-back but I, I think he'll he'll give them another adult uh we'll see how he's able to play obviously like that's another question mark but they kind of he was on the longer term of that time frame so hopefully he can come in and contribute looks like he's on about a 25 minute limit early on here jalen suggs has had some late heroics although just despite the fact that the magic have not been very good in the clutch uh, they are, are one of the unluckiest teams in the nba they've already won about two fewer games would be expected uh, given their negative 2.4 that rating to be at 5 and 12 but jalen suggs after nikola vucevic missed two free throws with the bulls up two magic led most of the way bulls were led by four suggs scored to cut it to two and then Vucevic misses two free throws. Suggs comes down, dribbles inside the arc, steps back, and hits the game-winning three in what was a disastrous loss for the Bulls. We'll talk more about them in a little bit here. Suggs has been playing mostly at point guard this season uh, with their dearth of guards. He's one of the few guard-sized guys that they have. It's basically been him and RJ Hampton, both of whom have kind of been more combo guards. And the three ball has been reasonably acceptable in aggregate so far this year. Now 31%. Remember, it was 21% a year ago. So he's gotten to the point, at least, where he's not just killing their offense anything stick out to you just from uh his overall stat line here before i talk a little bit more about how he's been getting to uh, how his season has gone there there are some interesting splits there but anything just the in the macro that sticks out to you brunson sort of like we just talked suggs. about with our suggs. Oh, sorry suggs i was yeah. i had i had nicks on the brain suggs <laughs> is well this is i was connecting it to our to jalen brunson because of the surrounding talent and everything else going on with them, despite having a large role when available, you know, Suggs is playing 30 minutes per game. His usage rate has actually declined. So it was 25.3 last year and 20, which is insane by the way, that it was that high last year with 45% true shooting. 
Right, and last year Suggs twenty one percent from three and forty four percent from two, so both well below what you would want. So usage rate dropping, that's definitely a positive sign. And something I like to look at for a player is are they getting their shots from different areas? And the concerning thing there for Suggs is that he's taking fewer shots around the basket and more shots from three. And even though he's improved dramatically from there, generally speaking, especially because Suggs only has one dunk on the season, it's not what you want there. Yeah, he's just had to do a lot of pick and roll. And it's kind of interesting because while his turnover percentage on pick and roll has been massive and is somehow even higher this year than it was last year, and his overall turnover percentage is above 20% now. It was way too high last year, obviously, but now he turned over 23% of the time in pick and roll last year. Now that's up to 27%. However, what's keeping his numbers afloat out of pick and roll where the overall number is actually not terrible he's above league average as a score in pick and roll 0.92 points per possession last year was just comically terrible at 0.64 he is shooting 22 out of 40 right now in pick and roll so even with that crazy high 27% turnovers out of pick and roll. He's been efficient, but it's been a lot of pull-up jump shooting that seems unsustainable. He's 12 of 29 on pull-up threes this season, so over 40% there, and 16 of 31 on pull-up twos. On the other hand, as a catch-and-shoot guy, he's 9 of 36 on three-pointers, so 25%. So it's been an odd mix where he's been a much better pull-up shooter. I think DeAnthony Melton was someone who was like that very early on in his career. He was a much better pull-up shooter than spot-up shooter. I think that I don't expect that to continue, but he doesn't still have like a crazy amount of pick-and-roll craft. And what can he do as an off-ball guy? That catch-and-shoot stuff has got to be a lot better. He is a fabulous defensive guard. Like That's true. We saw that in that game against the Warriors that we did, uh, forcing a couple of turnovers on Steph Curry late. Right, and, so, and that's yeah. part of why Suggs is so interesting is because he is miscast for now and lots of time for him to improve as a lead creator on his starting lineup, especially facing opposing starters. But they already have Ben Caro. Who knows? Maybe the Magic will get somebody else who can fulfill some of that. And I think Suggs has positional versatility despite his listed 6'4 height. He's very strong and like potentially could could do some different things or you have him what i've talked about memphis needing so much is you have him defend on ball but you have sugs primary offensive role be off ball yeah he just has to be able to make some shots he has been offensive rebounding a little bit more this season so he, he can make a few of those rugged hustle type of plays transition he's been very poor uh, both years that, that's the one thing where you're hoping to see more pushing the ball in transition from a, a young athletic guard that hasn't gone great so i do wonder what's going to happen if some of this unsustainable shooting off the dribble regresses even if some of the other stuff improves a little bit it seems like there's given his career history there's more room to regress on the off the dribble shooting than there is improve on the non off the dribble shooting also known as cut and shoots so we'll keep an eye on Suggs. we're getting to the point where he at least is not killing them and he's like a negative three net rating on the year which again given how few of their guards have been available and just how little playmaking they've had overall it is that's a reasonable performance with him out there for the team but do you is he going to be able to get to be a, a starter like the jumper has to just get so much better at that point he could be more of kind of these defensive combo guard off the bench you know a Daylon Wright type of guy might be more where I would predict his career is headed if I if you had to pin me down but obviously there's this is age 21 season there's much to be done still here 
Why don't we check out the Miami Heat? And I don't think we're going to spend a ton of time on them because they've just been so injured this last week. 7-10, and 3-4 and four since we last checked in on them. The negative 1.2 net rating is 22nd. Tyler Hero continues to be out with an ankle issue. He hasn't been traveling with the team. Jimmy Butler returned to Miami as well, and he's been dealing with some knee soreness. They're 20th on offense, 15th on defense. Raptor still has them for the 7th seed, 45 wins. Elo also 7th seed, 43 wins. And Raptor likes their playoff odds a little bit better, 76 to 65% Raptor Elo. Yeah, they only had seven guys on Friday. (laughs) It was Kyle Lowry who was more aggressive. Maybe that's something that they can benefit from overall. Struz, Caleb Martin, Haywood Highsmith, Nikola Jovic, Jamal Kane, and Orlando Robinson were both two-way guys. So that's pretty insane that they have two two-way guys and they still only were able to get seven guys. Uh, and they almost actually won that game against Washington, as we mentioned. But Right, yeah. They, they, they yeah. took the Wizards to overtime but then fell 107-106. And then the good news for the Heat was they got back Bam Adebayo and Dwayne Dedman for their game Sunday against the Cavs. That is basically their only good news from that game as they got demolished 113-87. Miami shot 6 of 31 from 3, and partially because it's very hard to find things with probative value for a team that has this many principals injured. I wanted to focus on somebody who has largely been healthy but has played significantly less this season than in prior years, and that's Duncan Robinson. So Duncan Robinson, last year, eventually, you know, largely usurped by Max Struess when Struess was healthy. He did start 68 of 79 games, and in a reduction from previously, Robinson played about 26 minutes per game. Unfortunately, that has dropped to 17.4 minutes per game, even with being so shorthanded. As an example there, Robinson played 21 minutes in the loss to the Cleveland on Sunday. He played 15 minutes in the loss to the Raps on Wednesday, and you brought up all the guys, especially shooters or offensive linchpins, that are out for the Heat. And so for Duncan Robinson, it was like, okay, you know, I know he's playing a lot less, but how's it going? And pretty horribly. So Robinson, relatively, in a, he's been an efficient player, including hyper efficient in 1920, on below average usage, you know, well below 20%. But those are down to 48% true shooting on 18 usage. Actually, I should note the 18 usage would be the highest of Robinson's career. And so I'm like, okay, what's what's going on here? And the, the easy one to always think about with a high-volume three-point shooter, especially one who doesn't get to the line, is he's just missing his threes. And yes, that is a part of it. Career 40% three-point shooter is making 30% in his age 28 season so far. But when you consider, even with some of the absences, the players that Robinson could play with and how well over the years Spolstra has used him, the number that concerns me more is actually Robinson taking the most twos of his career and only making 46% of them. Yeah, it's really been just an odd fall for him. And he's gotten enough time to where he should be able to show his quality. And he doesn't seem like he's playing that much differently. And of course, that high watermark in the 20 season where he was 44% 44% for three on the crazy volume and looked like one of the best offensive shooting guards in the league that he hasn't reached that still got the big contract but then if he's if he's not hitting shots there just isn't much else there and I still believe in him as a shooter some but you're you have to acknowledge maybe that that one season was an outlier and that that's just not coming back and he's going to be more of a high 30s type of guys and that really changes your perception of him because again like someone like him has got to come in here and be like over 60 percent true shooting to have value he just is not at that point at all finish up in the injuries Gabe Vincent's been out with a knee swelling the last two games he was questionable coming into the Cleveland game but did not play and 
and Butler is the, really the concerning one. Of course, they're missing Victor Oladipo as well. They probably would just play Oladipo over Duncan Robinson if they could, but uh, he's got the tendinosis, uh, and it doesn't seem like he's going to be back anytime soon either. Let's talk Detroit Pistons now. And again, we're going a little out of order. We'll get to the Pacers here in a second. Yeah, Disturbing I can, I, I, I can yeah. do their stats just before we Yeah, do, please I know do. I know we have a lot to talk about here. Detroit yeah. on the season, 3-15, and 15, and depending on your perspective, but yes, overall, a dejecting... One in seven since the last 15 and 60. They are last in the NBA in net rating, negative 10.1 per 100 possessions, 26th in offense. And as we talked about last 15 and 60, a very disappointing 29th in defense. Both Raptor and Elo are very low on the Pistons. 20 wins per Raptor, 23 per Elo, and gives them an extremely low chance of making the playoffs. And a big part of that is the pessimism and uncertainty that may become certainty, unfortunately, on Cade Cunningham. Yeah, I noted... Uh, Going forward, or I should say looking back, that about a week ago, maybe it was two weeks ago, the Pistons had a negative 30 net rating with Cade off the floor. And now that they've played a bunch without him, that's negative 11.2 with him off the floor. But the shin issue is a major concern he's he's missed time with that it's come out now through the reporting of sham sharani and james edwards that this has been bothering him going back to last season then it impacted his off-season workouts as well and obviously he's not been playing as well as as would have been hoped but it looks like he could be headed towards surgery i'm sure they'll try to rest it and see but it seems if it's been bothering him this long it seems like it's headed that way and we've seen guys struggle with this drew holiday bradley beal fortunately when the jeff stotts talked about this on intrigue close over the weekend we've seen the return to play be pretty good when guys have the surgery the bad part is though that the average number of missed games is 61 so if he has surgery to alleviate this stress reaction that could be it for right. his it, sophomore season and it seems like it's headed that way the the good news for cunningham and the pistons is that a return in the march april range means that he will get a full off season and that could be important for cunningham's development for the young pistons but certainly disappointing for a player you and i are both extremely high on and it totally changes the theory of their rotation it changes the way Dwayne casey thinks about his team and there aren't, to my eyes, any great solutions. Not that Casey is finding even the most optimal, in my eyes, of the remaining solutions. No, and I mean, Killian Hayes has started to shoot a little bit better. He actually was four or five at one point in the Lakers game. I watched the end of it, and that was enough for him to take his own three instead of passing it to a wide open Boyan Bogdanovich in the corner. And he missed that one. Still has not been uh, too efficient, but he's going to continue to. Uh, get plenty of chances because he, he's their only healthy point guard at, at this point in time uh, i also was just struck in the lakers game and anthony davis has been playing better recently but I, I thought it was huge that davis got four days off before that he looked very explosive but the pistons like the lakers took 19 threes and yet the lakers were 36 of 57 from two in the competitive portion of the game and 33 of 38 from the line just shows you and isaiah stewart's out too that the pistons just cannot defend the basket at all right now like it didn't matter that there was no spacing it didn't matter that they had no three-point threat the lakers they just went right through the pistons in the paint anyway and Jalen Duran is a backup center. Marvin Bagley has started at center in this game. Then Sadiq Bay went down with an ankle sprain after uh, jumping onto uh, an Austin Reeves pump fake and landing on his foot. 
Uh, Jaden Ivey had a really rough game, although he also was is still probably is probably their best creator. But he went like five possessions without touching the ball in the fourth quarter when it was still relatively in close range. There was also another play where Marvin Bagley just decided to like try to put AD in the mix from the three point line and go one on one against him and just threw up some crap that had no chance. It just this is this team is going to be it's going to be a rough watch <laughs> the rest of the year of Cadiz. I mean, they already were a rough watch. It's just I guess we'll be doing a lot of like Jaden Ivey and Jalen Duran breakdowns and then a month later we'll just check in on them again it's, it's gonna be our business stuff but at least while we can talk about Cade any numbers that really kind of stand out for you of this truncated season for him if this is indeed the end a couple of positives I think for me the biggest would be Cunningham again small sample size preliminarily heavily reducing his turnover rate 75 percent last year 13.8 percent this year that's a huge improvement wait hold on 17.5 percent yes you said 75 oh no i i apologize i apologize it's seven one seven point five yeah. no you had him confused with killian hayes oh god please continue so so down from 17 and a half percent to 13 percent this year right so that's good and with Cade, we're gonna wonder for a while about the pull-up three it is such a differentiator for the elite of the elite and something over the years whether it's ben simmons or Giannis or various others is yeah It'd be great if Cade Cunningham shot 35% on a billion threes per game. But the other thing a player like him can do is improve his pull-up too, because if teams have to respect that, then that can open up driving lanes, it can open up passing angles to the pick-and-roll screener. Yeah, so a big part of him reducing his turnover percentage has been last year he turned it over on 19.5 of his pick-and-roll possessions. That's down to 8.1%. It was a very low number this year. So that was encouraging just to not turn the ball over. I remember he turned it over a ton at at Oklahoma State as well. Uh, The pull-up two got a little better this year. Last year was 35% on pull-up twos. This year, 42%. But yeah, the pull-up three didn't really get much better this season. So there was some progress. Again, you don't know how much the shin was bothering him, even going back to his ability to work out in the offseason. And one of the things we talked about as we went into last offseason on their offseason outlook was his versatility gives you a bunch of different ways to potentially build this team. And the way that they chose to do it, at least for this year, was he was going to play point guard. Last year, he was just not on the floor without another point guard, hardly at all. He, he was, basketball reference listed him as, as either the shooting guard or the small forward, basically exclusively. This year, 73% of the time, he was listed as the point guard. He's considered the point guard, and Ivy is the two, I guess, in their parlance. And 26% of the time, he played with, you know, I guess it would have been Hayes or Corey Joseph would be considered the point guard playing next to him. And obviously, those guys probably don't help him too much. But we can also see that the versatility of how he was used concomitant with the fact that he's playing point guard and he's the guy bringing the ball up and initiating everything off the dribble a lot less versatility how he's used he k cunningham is a really nice posting he's got a like jump hooks with either hand he had two post-ups this season not that many isolations either where he's actually like catching the ball with a live dribble able to use his skill level triple threat game like there's a lot of his game that is just not getting used at all any off ball stuff catch and shoot very very limited so far this season transition is actually much lower this year than last year he's not really a push the ball in transition type of point guard either i think that that probably hurts their overall pace to some degree i think he would be better running the lanes and you know, maybe that that's something where ivy could kind of be the the guy you look for on the outlet in transition although ivy's pretty good running the lanes also 
And Cade Cunningham was only found on cuts four times this season. They're just, and he hasn't been used a single time as the pick and roll roll man this season either, where you might say it would be great for him to be able to be the screener, have someone come off the screen. Then he gets the, the other team switches it. Now he's being guarded by someone smaller. He can work from the Dirk office hours, something like that. Like there just has been zero variety to the way that he has attacked so far this year. And that's because there hasn't been much effort i think to use another place or they just don't have the personnel to work that way and they don't have good shooting and you know jane ivy is not really being used in a way where he's gonna like be the guy up top with the ball setting up Cade and so just everything had to start with Cade and you saw how much they struggled when he was off the floor like he still really helped them because they have no one else to do what he's going to do but it just it's too much for him right now like he's not Luka Doncic and I think I just I hope that they will reevaluate the way that they are building this team if in fact this is the last we're seeing of him this season to take a little bit more off his plate because I do and maybe he'll become that Luka Doncic guy four or five years from now he's not there yet like he well, and, and that's a lot to, to ask of anybody well. you know like Cunningham right, right. he turned 21 a couple of months ago the skill development remember Luka yeah. was arguably the most accomplished young player to ever enter the NBA and has delivered on his promise far more than even the most optimistic people expected and so holding anyone to that standard especially someone who doesn't have quite the same game is a lot to ask and like Kate Cunningham has 30% usage so far this season like he just it isn't that good yet like I mean I I was hopefully he would take the leap to all-star status that hasn't happened because I think partly due to his own feelings partly due to the personnel around him and everyone else being bad and obviously you know the Pistons being three and 15 wasn't going to help matters either so yeah I'm I I mean maybe I'll be wrong about Kate he was just never that good to begin with like where if he is done for the year where the hell we put him in our top prospects will be a tough question at this point so all right, that's probably enough on Cade and the Pistons for now. Let's get to the nine and six India Pacers. Five and one in their last six games. Positive net rating, 13th, 1.4. Ninth on offense, 22nd on defense. They project for the 10 seed per Raptor, 11 per Elo, but 38 wins in both of them. Decent chance to make the playoffs, 32 and 40%. What's going on with these guys? How are they ninth in offense? By pushing the absolute hell out of the ball. They I love it. I love it. I, I, it's so fun to watch. It's so fun to watch. We did a partial gamer on them this past week, and they're a great watch in part because they, the Pacers have the third lowest time to shoot per unpredictable, and that's despite having the number 22 defense. So that means they're not getting as many feedback loops, and that's one of the things that I posited is are they kind of a mini Toronto in the idea that the way for the Pacers to best succeed offensively is, like many teams, is to just be in the half court as little as possible. Important to note, though, that the Pacers have actually been better in half court offense, meaningfully so, than than the Raptors have been so far. But a couple of different stats. I love the unpredictable time to shot. It's just such a useful resource. And, you know, the idea of splitting offensive and defensive pace was such a good idea because those are very different things. And they are forcing turnovers. The Pacers are. They're 12th overall in the league. And they have an awesome 6.1 seconds per shot after forcing a turnover. That's among the best in the league. But you know how this is going to warm my heart. Two other reasons why the Pacers are dominating in time to shot despite having a bad defense. They are tied for the number one team running off makes and number seven in time to shoot off of a defensive rebound. And I will note, I'm not sure if unpredictable separates out live ball and dead ball 
defensive rebounds. It's just I, I just haven't seen anything in their notes that says it. And the Pacers are a full second lower than the median on time to shoot off a make and about a half second ahead of the rest of the, or the, the median of the league off of a rebound. So it's a huge difference. And a part of why the Pacers are able to do that is it's not just the starters who are pushing. It's the whole time. Yeah, and T.J. McConnell is someone who really pushes the pace, and I really even like their guards running the floor. I've mentioned this before, but Matherin, Buddy Heal, like those guys really get down the floor, fill the corners or run the lanes depending on where the ball is. Miles Turner is running the floor really hard. Isaiah Jackson does that. Like your centers can add some pace as well, and they really have a lot of guys who are going to push the ball pretty hard. They play a lot of two-point guard lineups with McConnell and Nemhard or Nemhard and Halliburton. That's another thing that that's been pretty effective for them pushing the ball. How is it, the Halliburton Matherin combo looking? Because as much as fun as Nembhard and and McConnell are like that, once they actually get a real three on this team, you know Matherin will play the two and he'll start. What's it going to look like there? Or, or I shouldn't say what's it going to look like, but what does it look like so far? The early returns continue to be positive. About 500 cleaning the glass possessions with Halliburton and Matherin playing together, and the Pacers are outscoring their opposition plus 1.1 net rating. Not surprisingly, that's fueled by their offense, considering the Pacers have been awful defensively this year 118.5 offensive rating in that sample and that is not due to the pacers hitting an unsustainable amount of threes they're around league average there and the those lineups are absolutely it's something the pacers have had as a strength this year they're killing it on the offensive glass overall indiana fifth in the league in offensive rebound percentage and i believe they're better than that in these this narrow sample but the Pacers are finishing less than 60% of their shots in the restricted area on pretty average frequency and free throw rate. I, we've, I praise Bathroom a lot for getting to the line. We'll have to keep an eye on where that goes moving forward. I don't want to dwell on it just yet. We're, we're in the narrow part of the season. Then one other thing, we're at 10 games now, but Miles Turner is still almost doubling his previous career high in free throw attempts per 36 minutes, 4.3 versus 8.1. And in significant part, thanks, thanks to that, Miles Turner, 68% true shooting, career high on 22 usage, career high. Yeah, we talked about that a, a little bit again, and we talked about a recent game of theirs and how him being the pick and roll guy and actually having good pick and roll point guards setting him up. Uh, he's been uh, quite a revelation there. Why don't we talk Bulls here and just to to break it up against the two of the Cavs, the Chicago Bulls are struggling, Danny. Well, yes, they are. Chicago six and ten on the season, but a dispiriting one and four since the last 15 and 60 and that includes a four game losing streak or if you want to expand it beyond the window of the last 15 and 60 they've lost six of their last seven a number of those were two good teams like the celtics and twice to the pels but they did also lose at home to the orlando magic on friday yeah and that was a rough loss this four-game losing streak that has included two losses to the Pels, but one was against a relatively shorthanded Pels team on Wednesday. And then the previous Sunday, we talked about this for the Nuggets, but the Nuggets blew them out by 23. And then the loss to the Magic, given how shorthanded the Magic are right now with just basically no guards, Paolo also out. I mean, that's just an inexcusable home loss. 
Zach Levine seemed to think it was inexcusable that he was benched for the last four minutes of the loss to the Magic. He was one of 14, and Billy Donovan actually took him out for Io DeSumo and went with a, a different, more defensive-focused group. And the other problem for the Bulls now is their upcoming schedule gets pretty rough. Like It could get late early for these guys. We're doing their game tomorrow for the strategy stream at 8 Eastern, 5 right. Pacific I'll, I'll, against I'll, the Celtics. I'll walk, through, I'll walk through the rest of it. I apologize for yeah, stepping yeah. on your promo. Um, but so they play Boston in Chicago on Monday in the game we're doing for the strategy stream. And then it's a challenging six-game road trip. Milwaukee, OKC, Utah, Phoenix, Golden State, Sacramento. Light up that victory beam again for the Kings. Unrelated. We're not talking about them in the 1560, but they, they are on a winning streak right now. And there are no back-to-backs there, which is good for the Bulls, but that is a lot of capable opponents. And even teams like OKC, who, are, who aren't perfect, they make you work really hard. And so there are no easy outs there, there unless the team has a lot of guys injured. So you get into that. And I think you and I were both skeptical on the Bulls for a lot of different reasons. Do you want to start with the reason that's kind of surprised us, or do you want to start with the one that hasn't surprised us? Yeah, let's start with the defense. And I actually think this defense, they're 14th right now, as we mentioned. I don't think it's totally unsustainable. And because they actually are playing some decent defensive players, like they got Desumu and Alex Caruso at the guards. They got Javante Green, who's been really good defensively this year. And if you you look at the fundamentals, they're forcing turnovers, which they did some at their peak last year as well. Fifth in forcing turnovers, sixth in defensive rebounding. Vucevic is a good box out guy there. Uh, They are 26th in defensive e-field goal percentage and 22nd in location e-field goal percentage based on where opponents are shooting. So they're not forcing opponents to take difficult shots. This isn't a great rim-protecting team. They are 15th in opponent shooting at the rim in terms of percentage. So I think, if anything, that'll probably go down a little bit for them. That could get worse. But opponents are shooting 39% on three. So that's 27th in the NBA. I would think that will certainly improve. So I don't think that there's much. Maybe you think they won't end the year 14th in defense particularly if things start to spiral a little bit here. And, you know, I think they're not going to be favored in any of their next seven games to me. So you could see them go you know, one in one in six, two and five in that. And then you're you're looking at, you know, basically seven, eight, nine games below 500. So then maybe the effort will start to wane and maybe even trades could be made at, at that point in time going into the trade deadline. But if they keep this their spirit and this group together, I think they'll be about the same, you know, mid-pack defensively. The problem is they're 23rd on offense. They're surprising, I would say, given that this is kind of team mid-range, 17th in location e-field goal percentage, but 20th in regular e-field goal percentage. They're hitting 52% on long twos. Hello, DeMar DeRozan. Thank you very much. Well, and and worth noting that 52% is league leading and they were among the best in the league last year, but that was at 43%. So they are well, well beyond what we would expect as the standard. Yeah. Yeah. So that is likely to regress, but Hey, you know, you'd think they'd be able to ride that somewhere like they're 17th in location e-field goal percentage and the bad shots that they're taking, they're hitting a ton of. So why aren't they better? Oof. I mean, Danny, check out some of these rim finishing percentages by their rotation guys. It's awful. Oh, yeah. That is absolutely ghastly. I mean, you have 
37.5% at the rim for Caruso, 43% at the rim for Dragic, 55% for Zach Levine, 56%, albeit in missed time, for Kobe White. And I mean, you could even think about Derek Jones Jr. and, you know, fantastic dunker and everything else. A, Derek Jones Jr. only has six dunks on the season, but also he overall 57% on shots around the basket. Yeah, Andre Drummond isn't exactly a stalwart finisher as a big either. You know, really, other than Javante Green, Dusunmu, and DeRozan, everyone else has been extremely poor finishing at the rim for their position. You know, even Patrick Williams, fifty-eight percent, like that's not very good. And so there, that's that well, really. Also, I, and I'm, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, there are. There are four Bulls rotation players, small sample size to be sure. Dragic, Javante Green, Alex Crusoe, and Patrick Williams that are shooting below 25% on floaters. Wow. So, and you just, even the starters, some of these teams, you're like, okay, they're starters, their core lineups are good. They've just had some injuries. They've had to play guys that don't project to be in the rotation. Once that ends, like they should look better. There's none of that. Their bench net ratings are generally better than their starters are. And then the other thing that they really relied on to win games last year in the clutch uh, hasn't sustained. It has not. And that's always something you and I are focused on when a team outperforms the norm in clutch situations even if i mean there are teams that can sustain in a positive or negative direction but last year chicago especially with the rosen magic third in offense third in clutch net rating 25 and 16 in those games and that's a part of why chicago outperformed their point differential by the second highest margin in the league and the only team that was more extreme was the funhouse mirror blazers and we've talked about them plenty So it's not a huge surprise because generally speaking, teams can't keep that up year to year that even if the pendulum doesn't swing this far forever, that it has swung the other direction. Yeah, I mean, that 0-7 in, in clutch games, now that's that's pretty tough. Um, DeMar DeRozan overall has been playing extremely well. Not quite as crazy as last year, but certainly anything you reasonably could have expected from him. But here's the problem, and this is why I think you got to hope that this gets better because obviously their path to salvation of being i mean obviously we're not talking about a championship contender even a first first round home court advantage team but even just to be in contention for the higher end of the play-in or the sixth seed they got to get a lot better so far this year Zach levine is supposed to be their second star that this is going to be a really good offense and the defense can be okay but you still got vooch and levine and derosen so it's never going to be that good but he has really been struggling 54 percent true shooting 27 usage so usage is down from where it's been but i mean all of these trends when i go through a bunch of them here are very disturbing so far and let's remember briefly before we get into this the timeline was pretty much fully healthy in 21 had a really good year was made the all-star team last year again and it was about january that he started to have this knee discomfort missed a little bit of time they said ah there's nothing structurally wrong but he went to la to get it checked out anyway and uh then he had the knee surgery to fix the absence of anything being structurally wrong after the season came in this year the plan wasn't that he was going to be limited but he's had issues with swelling in the knee hasn't been playing uh back-to-back i think he actually did play in a back-to-back recently so that's your context here uh, on a lot of this and you know clearly did not look right the second half of the season very rough playoffs well, against the bucks and there's additional context that i think is really important and this is hopefully not signal but when i look at a player who's kind of his athletic impact is waning whether that occurs when they are young or they are old 
I look at a couple basic things. One of them is, are they getting to the free throw line? And Zach Levine this year in 400 minutes, about a free throw attempt and a half below his standard over the time in Chicago. He's been in the you know high fives, low sixes, and he's at four and a half right now. Then you go, okay, well, maybe maybe Zach Levine is getting more around the basket. They're, they're not calling the fouls. 26% of his shots last year were in the restricted area. That's down to 18%. And so Oof. far, Levine has made 55% of those. And he's credited with five dunks, which is 2.4% of his possessions so far, as opposed to around 5.5 or even like six at other points. Just in his bull standing, we're not talking about the Minnesota Zach Levine there. Yeah, yeah, a percentage of, of his field goal attempts. And so, and I think it's even useful to go all the way back to 21 because that was his last fully healthy year. And so, two years ago, 63% true shooting. Last year, 60%. But again, he kind of fell off with the knee injury. This year, 54%. And the usage is also down. So, it's not like he's has to shoot way more and it's way harder shots. Two years ago, 57% from two. 53% last year. Gulp. 46% this year. You mentioned it. 31% of the shots at the rim two years ago, 26 last year, now 18% this year, almost half as many shots at the rim as two years ago. Rim finishing, 70% the last two years, 55% this year. And the three ball has been worse, 36%, but not enough of a sample to really conclude much there. He was in the high 30s, low 40s a couple of years ago. And you talked about the dunks. I, I Again, this this could be a total disaster if he doesn't start looking better. They just started the, the max contract. And you have to really question the way that all this was handled. Yes, it was Zach Levine on track to make his first ever playoff berth in eight years. He really wanted to play through it. He also wanted to earn a, a contract. Having surgery in the middle of the season last year, I don't know if he gets the max deal, whereas just the optics of finishing the season, not missing any time, and then having the surgery, maybe that made everyone feel better about things. He was told he can't make it any worse. There's nothing structurally wrong. I mean, one of two things happened. Either there was something structurally wrong, or he made it worse. <laughs> one of those two things did happen and maybe they just lied to us so people wouldn't be freaking out about it uh he got paid at least like the bulls at least took care of him when he was out there risking things for the team and let's also not forget that back in january maybe they could have deluded themselves into thinking they're like a real contender in the east they were the number one seed in the east for a time i mean i never believed that because just the fundamentals weren't there uh and they didn't know that Lonzo Ball would be out for the season either. It, it was a different when that decision was initially being made. It was a little bit different of an environment as opposed to the gutted team that made it into the series against the Bucs and had absolutely no chance. But would it have been better for him to just get this surgery in January? Like, did he make it worse? As a result of playing on it, should they have shut him down for a long enough time where he, maybe he could have recovered after a month of rest and didn't need the surgery? I mean, we'll never know the answer to this. Maybe, maybe his knee was so fucked at that point that even getting the surgery, he wouldn't have been better then. You know, you know, he, he would have been the same guy whether he had the surgery then or he had it after the season. I, I'm always loath to believe that. But yeah, like they're they are so screwed if this is the guy that they have now like he if he doesn't get better it's just such a disaster for this team that has had some really fun moments uh but he he needed to be you know their best player and he's just not looking like that at all let's get to cleveland and i will do their stats 10 and 6 they did lose five straight but now have won two straight after that nice blowout win today 
So two and five since we last checked in on them, which was the, they were at their high water mark of eight and one at that point. But they are actually still third in net rating at plus 6.3, fifth on offense and third on defense. They project for 48 wins on Raptor, same for ELO and high 80s, mid 80s, I should say, chance of making the playoffs in both projection systems. Dylan Winler, we talked about this a little bit, but just to follow up on it, he's going to miss four to six weeks after getting a PRP injection in his ankle. It had been the knee. It had been stress fractures. He's going to be in a walking boot now, and they could they could use what Dylan Windler was supposed to be. He just, I know there are some scouts who really liked him, including John, but it, he just has never been able to get off the ground, and when he has been out there, hasn't hit shots. So let's talk a little bit about just what their progression has been over this up and down period where they're eight and one lost five straight and then one two in a row right they say that basketball is a game of runs but you don't necessarily think of it in the macro the way that it has been for cleveland and some of that is player availability jared allen has missed some time you know mitchell missed a little bit and of course they dealt with reintegrating garland after his absence with the eye laceration to start the year and i wanted to look at you mentioned that cleveland's still overall in the season third in defensive rating. I wanted to look at, okay, is there anything weird, anomalous in what has happened to them since that eight-game winning streak? And the answer is yes. Cleveland, during that stretch, they are, since since the winning streak, they are 29th in defense, though I will note that doesn't include their crushing of the shorthanded Miami Heat on Sunday because the stats hadn't compiled yet. Um, A 120.3 defensive rating. And you and I would say, well, okay, we're that's a, a small situation. It's about seven games. And is there anything fluky? The answer to that is, oh, yeah, absolutely. Going into Sunday, Cavs opponents during just that stretch since the winning streak are shooting 42.5% on threes. That is the highest opponent three-point percentage of anybody other than the Spurs and about 7% better than the median team during that time period. So there's an easy regression of the mean that gets worse because the Cavs during that stretch are giving up the fifth, fifth most threes in the league. So opponents are taking a lot and they're making a lot. And that's also a stark difference from last season when Cleveland gave up the ninth fewest threes and opponents converted them at basically league average. So when they have their full complement of talent, I expect that to improve. And also, opponents are making a ton of their long twos. It's kind of, in a way, like they're playing DeMar DeRozan every night. 51% opponent shooting on long twos. That is unsustainably high. And I, I was interested because Cleveland, they're giving up a really high percentage, field goal percentage at the rim right now. And I was like, oh, did I remember that wrong for last year? And I was partially correct. I mean, so so my memory was that they gave up a fair amount of rim shots, but then teams didn't make them. And that was correct. So last year they gave up a reasonable amount, but opponents only made 60% of their shots around the basket, which was the lowest in the NBA. That 60.4% is currently 65.7% overall. Yeah, Donovan Mitchell has come back to earth a little bit, but the season-long numbers there are, are still outstanding. They really are. I mean, so so Mitchell, if you want the counting stats, 31 points and 5.8 assists per game and 64% true shooting on 31 usage. The 64% true shooting is miles beyond Mitchell's career best before this of 57. And a lot of that is making more of his twos. You know, Mitchell had only been better than 50% one year after his rookie year from two. That was last year at 53, this year at 57. And I'm skeptical that Mitchell, especially on the volume he's doing, the 41% on threes is sustainable. But being better from two, especially when you consider the spacing of some of these Cavs lineups, is just fantastic. 
Yeah, I've actually gone now to a starting group of Lamar Stevens in that Karis LeVert spot. LeVert played 14 minutes in this game, didn't do much, but then sprained his ankle. We'll see whether what his availability is going to be going forward. And it was the minutes in this game were pretty weird too because it was such a blowout. Jetty Osmond ended up playing 37 minutes off the bench and was plus 39 in their win over uh, uh, that extremely shorthanded Miami team. The Mitchell Garland pairing. What do you make uh, of that so far? It has been less successful offensively than their other kind of each of those guys solo and weirdly inferior to the the non-garbage time minutes when Mitchell and Garland have played have not been on the floor at all. 112.4 is still fine and the Cavs are shooting 34% from three, which isn't great. You can remember that a lot of those starter-ish lineups have very limited spacing for the Cavs, even when they start Levert at the three. On that note, Evan Mobley is two of 12 on three so far this season, which is a lower attempt rate and success rate than last year. You know, we're, we're early or we're early days, but that's that's important to remember about whether his game is growing. Also, Mobley's usage rate and assist percentage are slightly down. Not a huge surprise when you consider that they have Donovan Mitchell now and it's a different it's a different kind of concept of the team. But the, you know, you and I have frust- been frustrated at times with Bam Adebayo and wondering if he's going to take that step and we might end up there a little bit with Mobley at least for now, but they have really good players and when Mitchell's been on the floor by himself, so meaning no Garland, 119 offensive rating plus 9 net rating, though important to note, those are more commonly against backup units than the Mitchell plus Garland because that's how the rotation works. Yeah, and much of that early start was compiled uh, with Darius Garland injured and the Mitchell Garland minutes, uh, they've had other guys out during those minutes. They are playing with the two bigs, basically two total non-shooters. You mentioned only the 12 three-point attempts for Mobley and he's played some center, so that's not entirely indicative because when he's center, he's not going to be spaced out, but he should be in theory plenty when he's playing with Jared Allen and so then you're throwing in Okoro has had some starting moments as well Lavert isn't someone who's like really been a huge three-point threat Lamar Stevens who they started with today so it's they've got a, a tall hill to climb but also haven't been great so far Garland had the huge game without Mitchell with the sprained ankle when he had 51 in that weird loss to the Minnesota Timberwolves at home but overall Garland shooting only 43% from two. That'll be something to watch as well. And Levert is only 36% from two. Anything else on these guys? One other thing to mention just very quickly. The Cavs' offensive rating when Darius Garland plays without Donovan Mitchell is actually very similar to last year, 113 versus 115. And... I think that makes complete sense. It's not like they've fundamentally transformed those lineups, though the the sample size of who he's playing with is a little bit different. But that is, you know, it's it. I mean, Garland has been awesome, and we talked about how they were so much better last year without him on the floor. But you know, that's the selling point for having Donovan Mitchell there is that you have these two players that can push things forward. And you know, Cleveland, despite their recent partial swoon, still third, sorry, fifth in offensive rating. Let's talk Brooklyn Nets here. Eight and nine. Of course, uh, quite the roller coaster. Four and three since we last checked in on them. 18th in net rating, 0.2. 13th on offense, 17th on defense, where they have 
been on quite the yo-yo in particular 42 wins per both projection systems that would be the eighth seed 61 percent chance of the playoffs per raptor 58 percent elo Kyrie irving has returned and it seems like he's done anything that reasonably could have been expected of him in terms of apology he has met with the media a couple of times he had a, a interview with ian begley in which he apologized to basically as much as i could have expected someone to apologize in his position he's met with a lot of leaders he has a better understanding so it seems like this you know i don't think again that you know Kyrie irving really had like hate for judaism in his heart or something like that but or, or hate for jews in his heart i think he was trying to be a contrarian and then was uh being his usual obstinate self in the aftermath of this and so i i don't have a problem with him returning to play that he had 14 and 5 in 26 minutes uh, as they took care of a very short-handed grizzlies team without their starting backcourt that'll be the case for some time actually it looks like now for memphis and ben simmons uh, has played much better since returning from this absence due to the knee swelling had a season high 22 i I thought it was big in their game over the weekend against portland which royce o'neill won with a tip in because chauncey billups thought that anthony simons and damian lillard should be on the floor on a defense only possession at the end of the game royce o'neill went right over both of those guys for the winning tip in after katie missed an iso but uh with about 330 left in the game against portland they go to the hack of simmons and he actually made three out of four and i thought that was i I believe that is the first time anyone's gone to the hack of simmons this season and i think it was a really big mental hurdle for him even though it was only four free throws to survive that he made two then he made one out of two after that and then it got under two minutes but he didn't completely embarrass himself and he was attacking more in that game against portland he then started at center with nick claxton out they played a little bit of claxton and him together against portland but uh with Kyrie back, Yuta Watanabe has been a revelation. We'll talk about him in a second, but uh, it seems like they're able to kind of get enough size around him at center to maybe survive defensively. We'll see uh, well, very I, I, soon I, I, Philadelphia on Tuesday. But. I will note that it looks better for the Nets when they play the Grizzlies without both oh, John sure, Morant sure. and... Yeah, but 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 like you know they still have the same interior defenders and Simmons had 22 points. He attacked. Sure. I mean he he kind of he had his like fadeaway right-handed hook shot going a lot, but you know he actually like drove went into contact uh, against Santi Aldama and knocked him back and did a hard driving left-handed layup. He had a couple of dunks around the rim. I will say that he does not look as explosive as before the injury, and he's getting to an age where that might be the case anyway, but you're not seeing the same type of rise on like two feet around the rim. He can still dunk an alley-oop, but it's like he's not like crushing these dunks anymore, Uh, but he looked to push the pace some as well, and yeah, him having 22 points, like he's We'll still need to see him at the highest levels defending out on the floor where he hasn't necessarily had the impact yet, but him just simply trending in the right direction. And as bad as he looked at the start, you do have to conclude either it was this free throw thing, which maybe he's now getting over, but he, he was playing better before that, the hack of Simmons too, or maybe it really was the knee that was bothering him. And he, he talked about that in an interview. So I, I'm pleased that with now Kyrie coming back for you know, who knows what the next issue will be, but maybe the, the Nets can actually look decent like and i also think I, I was very focused on this last year that the nets just didn't have any kind of a stretch four option i mean really kind of stretch five but 
someone who's got some kind of size and can make a three. And Yuta Watsonabe has really improved his three-point shooting. He plays hard enough and he's not, you know, a great isolation defender. Like, do you want him to switch on to Damian Lillard? He held his own okay in that Portland game on that matchup, but it's probably not one you love. But just to give like some defensive competence, and he's also just been bombing those quick release lefty threes. Taylor Jenkins talked about how much better he looks there than uh, during his time in Memphis. So I I think like he's just allowing them to play in a better way. Joe Harris is still kind of working his way back in. Seth Curry has had a few big games, but you know, he looks all right now coming back from the ankle. So maybe things are actually like setting up for the Nets to look okay until the next crisis. They need quality play from players outside of their core. And they're getting more of that from players like Yuta Watanabe, which is extremely encouraging. I don't want to go super big on it, but one of the curiosities for me with Brooklyn season, and this tweaked a little bit with their win over Memphis on Sunday, is that Brooklyn overall in the season, they're now 17th in defense, but they're in the they're in the top five of one of the defensive four factors in the bottom 11 of two more, and then middle of the road and one, they were actually top 10 in turnover percentage before the weekend. And they're awful on defensive rebounding. I don't think we need to talk about that. We, you know, including that Pelicans game we did. And maybe with if they can get some better lineups out there with a little bit more functional size, that could help. And 20th in opponent free throw attempt rate. Simmons has done a, a ton of fouling. Stefan No had a piece on that, and he and I talked about it on Real GM Radio last week. And there actually aren't that many high foul guys on the Nets, so I think that's going to tone down over the course of the season. But the biggest surprise is that opponent turnover rate. 13.2% of opponent possessions last year ended in a turnover, and that is all the way up now to 14.8. That's a big jump. You know, those are those are possessions where you don't even get a shot up. And I was thinking, you know, like I was like, oh, that's a that's a big change. And I was like, well, it doesn't seem like in the starter minutes that that's been dramatically different. And the answer is yes, that is true. In Kevin Durant's minutes, which is as good a proxy as there is for starters on the Nets, they've been about the same league rank as last year. But some of those bench units, high steal rate for Edmund Sumner and Kessler Edwards and Cam Thomas and David Duke Jr. have been impressive. And, you know, Ben Simmons, when he's at his best, he can force a lot of turnovers too. Yeah, I think they don't look like a tire fire on defense, which is all all that you can ask for. And some of that, again, has been compiled with limited shooters like Sumner and Duke and um, where they're really just kind of relying on KD to handle the offense. But with Kyrie back now and Joe Harris and Seth Curry and Wananabe shooting it the way he is, they might actually get a little bit worse on defense because there just aren't as many minutes for the tryhard types. I mean, Sumner and Duke are really the, the two that I look at there the most. And we'll see whether Claxton gets his minutes reduced some now if they just decide that Simmons at center is the way that they're going to go a lot of the time. But maybe they can really take off uh, offensively now with Kyrie being back. He's essentially missed half of their season so far. Anything else you need to talk about on these guys? Just briefly, the, the Nets have a pretty big difference between opponent location effective field goal percentage where they've been middle of the pack and actual effective field goal percentage where the Nets are currently fifth. And so you expect there to be some kind of regression to the mean there. Generally, teams, you get a clearer sense of the shots teams are giving up early than whether those opponent shots actually go in because you face more opponents and you more variants and everything else like that. But the good news is it's not... Nets opponents missing a billion threes. They're actually have Nate. They're, I would say they've, they've been unlucky from three. They've just been better protecting the rim and a league low 31.8% on opponent floaters, which that that's controllable, but it's a little bit rosy. So 
We'll get into some of that a little bit more moving forward. But now let's talk about the Atlanta Hawks. The Hawks are ten and six overall from overall on the season. They are four and three since the last fifteen sixty, including that win over the shorthanded Bucks. They also split games against the Sixers and beat the Raps in overtime on that wild kind of closing play. The Hawks are 15- yeah that that for for those who missed it, it was pretty crazy. They inbound the ball, no timeouts left, get it to Trey, and he starts to dribble up. It seems like everyone just assumed he was going to take a shot from half court, but with about two point five seconds left, he lofted a pass to AJ Griffin, who got behind everyone. The Raptors just sort of were like assumed that time was out and there's no way they could pass it to someone right under the hoop and they threw him an alley-oop and Griffin tipped it in with basically no time remaining to win the game. Yes, and that pushed them to 10-6. and six. The Hawks are 15th in net rating, but meaningfully positive, plus 0.7. 16th in offense, 8 in defense, and both 538 models project them to finish with 47 wins, though that is 6th in Raptor and 4th in the East in ELO and gives them about an 80% chance of making the playoffs. Where do you want to start? Well, there's six on defense. Uh, I guess now eighth. Uh, it was six when I looked it up earlier today. They didn't play, but uh, some other teams moved around. Uh, and that's on the basis, so you just talked about with the Nets, of being number three in e-field goal percentage defense. The other four factors are below average. 21st in forcing turnovers, which is actually like way better than they've been. 19th in defensive rebounding. You'd hope they could get better there, but the bench units are, are not going to be great. Uh, and then they're 26 sixth in fouling defensively and defense has 24th in location e-field goal percentage and as i mentioned they're they're third and that's in terms of the actual e-field goal percentage given up by their defense that's the basis of their number eight overall defensive ranking right and just on that front you can make an argument and i would that the atlanta hawks are the single luckiest team so far in terms of opponent shooting because there's their second to philly in terms of just three point percentage 32.9 and again the median right now in the league is about 36 and a half so that's well below but also because Hawks opponents are shooting 38% on long twos, and that's among the lower marks in the league. Yeah, and particularly a lot of this 33% opponent three-point shooting, which uh, is, again, the second best number in the league, 31.7% from the corners. And that's those are usually the most open shots or easier. League average on that is usually in the high 30s. So that's going to be but, something that clearly uh, will regress. By the way, Atlanta's second lowest corner three field goal percentage at 31.7 as you said philly 26.4 yeah that's almost tyrese maxi tyrese maxi is just really good at closeouts danny you're just gonna have to accept it they are however 10th in opponent shooting at the rim where they are allowing the fourth most shots at the rim I don't think it's totally unsustainable for them to have that number. Uh, Kongu and Kapala are both pretty good rim protectors. So I think that's a, a number that they can feel good about, but they're allowing so many shots at the rim and they foul as well in part because of that. I'm sorry, actually, let me double check that. Maybe my notes are wrong. Yeah, Atlanta is allowing a ton of shots at the rim, the fourth most uh, shots at the rim. And some of the defensive impacts that's are, you know, Collins is not great. He's in the low 60s. Capella is, is more mid-50s. Okongwu hasn't been as good as you might hope there. He, he's been in the similar range, low 60s. So it's really been Capella, who has contested 96 shots at the rim, along 54% shooting. That's a pretty good number. But what about the offense, Danny? I, I mean, I think... 
Uh, I guess actually one more thing on defense first. Uh, They are getting back on defense really well and keeping teams out of transition. And a big part of that is just that they never turn it over on offense. That's the one thing that really stands out about their offense. Everything else, though, some of these numbers are pretty dicey offensively. They are, though it is encouraging that the offensive rating when Trey Young is on the floor, that's up to 116.4. That's 76 percentile per cleaning the glass. But, you you know, we talked about the shot mix that the Hawks have had defensively. They're 29th in offensive location effective field goal percentage. And that's been a criticism of Nate McMillan from the two of us the entire dunked on era when he's had a head job. Yeah, going back to uh, those Pacers teams, they are second in the number of field goal attempts they are taking from long mid-range, 14% of their field goal attempts. They are number one in two-point attempts, but only 21st in two-point percentage. You know, this isn't like the Pels who are just assaulting the rim and not shooting any threes, but they're just killing you at, at the basket. And so that's uh, only 53% from two. Not a great number in today's day and age. And they are 26th overall in e-field goal percentage. They're not a dominating offensive rebound team the way they were a couple of years ago. And so really avoiding turnovers is the one thing that they're doing well. And you look at some of these three-point percentages, Danny, up and down the roster and the fr- even not on not that great a frequency for 36 minutes. I mean, it's just, it doesn't look good. And these are not guys with great shooting reputations and they are not shooting well. Sure. I mean, Jalen Johnson so far, he's still only taking 3.6 six threes per 36 minutes but he's making 14 percent of those john collins 23 percent even trey 32 percent on 7.4 per hundred possessions but nate i don't know if you looked at it do you know which regular rotation hawk has the highest three-point attempt rate per 36 minutes it's not trey highest three-point attempt rate regular okay is are you counting aj griffin aj griffin is third rotation? he's he's slightly behind trey young yeah, I mean, uh, per 36 minutes, Justin Holiday? Correct. 8.1 per 36, making 33% of them. Okay. So basically, of the of the guys who actually play for Atlanta, there is only one player who is taking more than five threes per 36 minutes and making a better than 33% of them, and that's A.J. Griffin at 36%. Yeah, and John Collins, that 23%, that's... So far below what he's done in his career recently. And there's talk again from Mark Stein that now there's really a commitment to get him out of there. Like like they haven't been trying to trade him before. And we'll see. I'm just not sure what the team is that needs John Collins due to his fit. And especially if it's he's shooting so poorly from three, if, if teams are going to buy into that, that's another problem. So they're 10-6. and six. They've already won two games more than expected, basically, with that pretty close to even net rating. I think the offense will probably get better just with uh, Bogdan coming back. Uh, obviously, if Trey misses time, then that changes. Maybe they'll even make a move for some shooting. Some of these guys will shoot it a little bit better than they have. Although, when you look at just the structural issues in terms of where they're getting their shots, and DeJounte Murray, he's always those his teams are always going to shoot a lot of mid-rangers because he takes a ton of mid-rangers. I think the defense is clearly going to get worse, though, because of that. They've been basically the luckiest shooting luck team in the league. And this is a 500 team. That's just what it looks like to me. I, I said it two weeks ago, and I don't really feel any better about it. You know, I think part of why they're 10 and 6 is they've had a pretty good schedule. Would they be a lot better if they just kept Kevin Herter and didn't make that move in part for tax reasons? You know, maybe you could say that wasn't an option with the tax going forward, and he was the guy who had trade value rather than Collins. Maybe you, they could have just gone into the season and figured it out with Collins or something like that, but they could certainly use what Kevin Herter is giving the Kings right now. The Kings are uh, on fire. But yeah, it just, it doesn't, there's 
almost no evidence so far that the Murray trade has like changed their destiny. I know the projection systems are still fans, although it seems like I think they were projected to win like 50 at the start of the year. They're 10 and 6, but that's gone down to 47. So apparently the projection systems aren't too impressed with what they've done so far, at least this season. Let's finish up with the 13 and 3 Boston Celtics. They had some injuries. It hasn't mattered. They are 7 and 0 since we last checked in on them. 8.0 net rating is number one in the NBA. And that is what's the number two team in net rating right now? Now, is there anyone else who's even like over five right now? Yes, there are actually three other teams over plus five. The Phoenix Suns are at plus 6.6. The Cavs are at plus 6.3 and the Bucks are at plus 5.1. But they are still significantly, they meaning the Celtics, significantly ahead of the back. Yeah, I guess I, I looked at it before Phoenix won by 20 against the Knicks today and Cleveland won by 20 as well. Uh, however, first on offense, oh, we shall talk about that. 120 offensive rating. That is way up there. The number two offense right now is Sacramento at 119 and then number three is Phoenix at 117.7. They project for 60 wins, Danny. We actually have a great regular season team projected. That would be first in the Eastern Conference and the NBA. Elo at six for 61 wins. And this is the one team that has for sure playoff odds right now. We buying this offensive performance. Are they like gonna be just this incredible offense all year? In part. I, I so the place that I want to begin here is that Boston actually has been somewhat disappointing in transition. They're playing a lot of their possessions in the half court. You know, that that's something we like to look at. And their fast break point per possession, you know, it's a little bit better than league average. So how in the world are they leading the league in offensive rating by this margin? Well, well, quickly in terms of transition, uh, part of why how you get a ton of possessions in the half court is your 30th in forcing turnovers defensively. Correct. That's what they are. Correct. And so yeah, that, that could change depending on how player availability shifts moving forward, though Joe Missoula is doing some different things tactically. But so the question is, okay, you know, you're... You know, you're not playing a ton in transition. You haven't been dominant in transition. The way it's happening is that the Celtics have a 107.2 first shot half court offensive rating. Yeah, no offensive rebounds included in that either. No transition. And, and you know, generally you're going to get offensive rebounds on 20 to 30 percent of your misses. So like that's just it's an unbelievably ridiculous number. It is. And if you want a little bit of context, I did not go through everything on Clean the Glass. But last year's leader, I mentioned the Celtics are at 107.2. Last year's league leader in half-court offensive rating was Atlanta, 101. The Nets did put up a 105 in the 2020-21 season, though there were some anomalous factors there, including the partial season without fans. And if you wanted his context, those best KD Warriors teams were in the 102 first shot half court offense rating. So yeah, and and they killed teams the most in transition. That was where the right. Warriors teams were exactly. the absolute best. But obviously 102 is still very, very good. So the, the place I like to start when kind of evaluating an offense is are they getting shots in the right places? And the answer is yes, mostly. The Celtics are absolutely bombing from three. 44% of their shots are from long distance, which is the most in the league. And there are three teams as of, I think this was Saturday morning that I pulled this stat. The Celtics, the Warriors, and the Dallas Mavericks were taking 43% or more of their shots from three, whereas no one else in the league was above 40.5%. And the median is a little bit below 35% of your shots being from three. So I was wondering, is that the 
Is that a new frontier? I mean, obviously, you're not necessarily going to make a, a zillion of those threes, but is that, you know, Boston is overall eighth in location effective field goal percentage and taking a boatload of threes is a big part of it. Yeah. So, so for context there, I think the Jazz the last couple of years were taking about 45% of their shots as threes is for memory. And those Houston teams with Harden would take about half of their shots. That's like the highest we've ever seen. You know, it's other than those teams. And that part of that was the James Harden taking, you know, 13 threes a game off that step back in isolation, which is just not a shot, a, a type of shot that anyone else can create, you know, a three pointer, even Steph can't create a three pointer off the dribble whenever he wants like that and have it be a good shot. So it may be that other than for those teams about that, you know, mid forties is about as high as, as a team can get these days. The Celtics com- compound that frequency with a very high success rate so far. They're 39.2% on threes, which is fourth best in the league. So if you're doing that volume and that efficiency, it's going to make a huge difference. Boston also the thing that is, I mean, five, you know, fifth in the league last year for reference, they were 16th. And I do think the Celtics have better shooters this year, but not dramatically so. And they're also shooting a ridiculous 50.5% on long twos. That is the third best in the league. I, I expect that to tone down a little bit. But the things that I think so so this is more like modest regression of the mean stuff, not like dramatic. And and it's also worth remembering that the Celtics they have some areas that could be even stronger moving forward. I mean, they haven't had Robert Williams at all, so that's part of why Boston has the fourth lowest offensive rebound rate in the league. But, and we've talked about Jason Tatum in this, they're getting to the line a lot more, eighth highest in the league after being 21st last year, and they're really not turning the ball over. So they've dropped, they've, they've improved from 13th in the league to second. And I wanted to go into that free throw attempt rate. We've talked about Tatum before. He's jumped up more than two attempts per 36 minutes. But another person who really helps them is Malcolm Brogdon. Yeah, just someone else who can break the paint and kick out. He's missed a a few at the hamstring, but he's back now. And just to give them a little bit more pace in that half-court offense, which has been so dominant. So going back to the core question, is this sustainable? And at this level, no. I mean, that that would be the best half-court offensive rating that in modern NBA history. And the Celtics team has been wonderful. Tatum has been excellent. And they have a lot of uh, nice support players. And Missoula has done a nice job getting them taking effective shots. But what I think is really encouraging for the Celtics is that my read right now is that the steps back will be more modest and that this is still going to be one of the league's best regular season offenses. Whether they can sustain that against the best postseason defenses, we'll still have to see. Of course, that was a challenge for them in the 2022 NBA Finals. But this is a regular season monster in my eyes. Yeah, it seems that way. And the matchups will be fascinating. The Bucks found ways to disrupt them last year, uh, although in the end, the Bucks being unable to score was the big problem. You, you still you have kind of two strategies uh, against these teams that shoot it so well. I mean, one is to just you know, force them into more isolation ball with switching. There really isn't a team they're going to go up against in the East that can do that. Maybe Miami if they get their shit together, but they're, that doesn't look imminent right now. And they still scored pretty well against Miami a, a year ago. And then, or you just totally wall off the rim the way the Bucks can do. And yeah, take your threes, but maybe the Bucks are going to be so good defensively now that they can take a, away a few more threes and also wall off the rim as well this season 
and that that's a, could be the kryptonite for the Celtics offense. Uh, but I'm interested to see how the return of Rob Williams is going to change things. And part of why they've been so dominant is they basically never play any lineups that aren't five out. You know, they, we've had a few Vonley plays, you know, you know, but like, and uh, a little bit of Blake Griffin, like, the, and, you know, Luke Cornett and Horvath, like, those aren't like dominating three-point shooters but enough that they have to be guarded out there or even that they'll stand out there and that just gives so much room for these guys to drive we talked in a previous episode about how just the overall driving for this team is so much better and that's how they're creating a lot of these three-pointers because the threes that they're getting like it's not they're two real pull-up three-point shooters actually uh, there's three guys you'd look at like tatum his pull-up three has been off he's only hitting 26 percent, 18 to 69 jalen brown is 21 percent on pull-up threes five out of 24 brogdon hasn't hit many either so it really has been setting up just lots of catch and shoot opportunities off of ball movement and that's been really exciting for this team and so can you take that away will be the question going forward we made it danny it's incredible 221 all right that wasn't that bad it's, uh at least for me <laughs> i know you're feeling a little bit under the weather but thank you for making it through and thank you all so much for being subscribers a couple of announcements number one of course is nba league pass strategy stream tomorrow bull celtics and then i will be doing a victor Wembanyama game on the nba app that is going to be saturday november 26th over thanksgiving weekend great excuse to get away from your family after three consecutive days with them the highlights have been unbelievable i'm actually going to just be doing a pure color role uh, with kevin dana as the play-by-play guy that's going to be at 2 Eastern, 11 Pacific. All of these uh, will be available in the NBA app. So looking forward to watching some spectacular plays. Wembenyama is leading the league in scoring right now in the French League. That's pretty incredible. So really looking forward to doing that. And Danny and I will be back tomorrow. We'll talk to you all then.